Thanks for checking out the Southcrest Church Podcast. We are one church meeting in two locations in South Atlanta. You can find us online at southcrest.church, where you can listen to our past sermons, watch our 4G stories, and learn more about who we are. Do you see what I see? I see a church that for 16 years has loved South Atlanta one relationship at a time. A church that in the past year alone has seen more salvations and baptisms than any other year in its history. I see a church that is committed to making a lasting impact in Coweta and Troop County. A church that has deep relationships in schools and in the community. A church that has trusted God and has followed Him at all cost. But I see more. Do you see what I see? I see a church that is willing to do whatever it takes to share the love of Jesus. A church that is ready for what God has next. I see a church that has established itself in Troop County and is ready for a permanent location. A church that wants to expand throughout South Atlanta. A church that gives out of the overflow of their heart. A church that is the future of the next generation. I see a church that is being the church. I see Southcrest. God has given our church an incredible opportunity to impact His kingdom. Over the next 100 days, we are asking you to join us in our Do You See What I See giving campaign as we move forward with all that God has planned for our church. Well, good morning, guys. It's great to see everybody. You're looking fantastic. My name is Jake and Dukes. I'm the campus pastor here at our Newton campus. And we have been in a series called The Grace Card. And The Grace Card is really all about grace and how we play the card and when we play the card. And today we're going to be jumping into a passage in Titus chapter 2. I think it's going to give us an interesting perspective on grace, maybe a little bit unique perspective, one that you haven't quite heard in this way before. And so it's really cool, man. We get to spend our time in the Word this morning, and I just want to say to us and remind us, this Word has power. And so every time we read it, every time we open it, man, God moves. And I just want us to be expectant today that as we read God's Word, God's word He is going to show us some new things about ourselves. So can we just be open to receive whatever God has to say to us? Does that sound good? Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. So we're going to be in Titus chapter two, and I'm going to be looking at verse 11, just a little bit about Titus. Maybe this is a book that you haven't looked at before. It's in the New Testament, one of those shorter books, and it's Paul writing to an actual church planter. And so he's, uh, some of his other books he wrote even to individuals like Timothy, but even the issues that he was addressing in Timothy were more for the church at Ephesus. So Paul is literally giving encouragement to an individual church planter here and helping him understand, hey, how do you shepherd the flock? And our verses today, verses 11 through 14, what they believe is this was one of those original kind of baptismal creeds. When someone would be in a baptismal service, they would say these things right before or during the time where they got baptized. And so this is a really good text for people who are just starting out in their faith. And it's really an understanding of grace that gives a full picture past, present, and future of how grace works in our lives. So let's jump in. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. 
And it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no. What an interesting idea about grace. It teaches us to say no. Let's keep going. To ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I want you to notice that phrase, a people that are his very own. You see, we are that people. Christ has redeemed us to be his own possession. And we are the church. We are the ecclesia. We are the called out ones that Christ has picked and apportioned to be chosen to be redeemed and purified for a possession that is Christ's. And if you think about the first century, the first century church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, what they originally saw as Christianity was a radically different way to be human. You know, the original idea, ecclesia, that term, it's a Greek term. What does it mean? It literally means to be called out, to be separate, to be set apart. And so in the first century, if you look at what you see, and even, even some of the writers that were non-Christian, what they would observe about the first century Christians, that they looked different than the rest of the world. There was a guy whose name was Pliny the Younger. He's a Roman and he was writing to the Emperor Trajan. He had brought several Christians to trial. And he was, like, I, he was trying to get a picture of what the Christians represented, who the Christians were in that time in 109 AD. And what we see here is he tells us that Christians were known for unimaginable hospitality, a radically different sexual ethic, and extravagant generosity. And so Christianity in the first century, was known to look very different than the rest of the Roman world. Look at what Pliny the Younger has to say to the Emperor Trajan, okay? He's talking about Christians, and here's what he has to say. This is 109 AD, one of the earliest records that we have where a non-Christian is telling us what they think about Christians, okay? So this was the MO for Christians in the first century. They, meaning Christians, were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. Remember, he's a pagan. He has no idea what's going on. And to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Isn't this amazing? One of the earliest writings that we have, testimonies that we have about the church that wasn't from somebody inside the church. And he says that they were characterized, I think it's interesting to note, that they were characterized by their trust not to falsify their trust. 
You know, it was interesting to see here that Christianity in the first century shocked the world, not by their power or by their rhetoric or by their persuasive speech, but by their moral standards of holy living. Which kind of boggles the mind, really. If you think about right here, right now, in our day and age, the reputation that we have as Christians in the world, right? It's not that great anymore. Unfortunately, we aren't quite sitting in the place that we were in the first century to the rest of the Roman world. Now the world thinks about Christians and they probably think, oh yeah, they're, they're kind of just like the rest of us, except for they go to church on Sundays. And so it's probably difficult for us to imagine that the first century characterized Christians as being radically different from the surrounding world. We don't really hold that place anymore. And so, you know, I got I to gotta say here, when we're talking about holiness, it's difficult to even talk about holiness in a series on grace, right? Because part of me wants to say, wait a minute, that's why I love grace so much, because I don't have to think about that part anymore. I don't have to be holy because Jesus has made me holy. And so I don't have to think about my behavior, what I'm doing, the wrongs, the rights. And part of that is true, right? Jesus has declared us forgiven before God. Our sins, past, present, and future are all taken care of. And yet there's these verses that you see in the New Testament, places like Peter, where God tells us, be holy for I am holy. And I personally struggle with this idea of holiness, of like acting holy in my life, because I know the standard of God and it's high. And I look at my life and I realize I'm just not measuring up. I look at the way that I parent. I look at the way that I drive. I look at the way that my, my thought life, I look at the way that I spend my time and I realize that I am just not there yet. I don't think I'm there yet today. And the reality is, what place does holiness have in the life of a Christian practically? And that's what we're going to look at today. Does God really expect us to be holy? You know, I was reading a story about a mom, and this mom had just gotten absolutely fed up with all the whining, the backtalk, the lack of cooperation. Her husband had checked out. He wasn't supporting her. The kids were just running amok. Everybody was going insane. And so she is just finished with this. And she literally takes the time to write a sign out that says, Mom on strike, and put it in the front yard. Amazing, right? Moms, you're like, this is a brilliant idea. Like, you can actually go on strike? I didn't know that. This mom figured this out, okay? So she goes on strike. She puts it in the front yard. She leaves the house. Where does she go? She doesn't go to a hotel. She doesn't go to her parents. She barricades herself in the treehouse in the backyard, okay? Climbs up the rope stair ladder, pulls up the stair rope ladder behind her, and just barricades herself up in a treehouse. Mom on strike. And so this is a true story, okay? This literally happened. And so there's a TV company, a news company, and of course, they're going to get a, a piece of this action, right? Let's, let's, we got to figure out what's going on here. So they show up at the house, and they're interviewing the husband. And this poor husband, right? I mean, guys, we can identify at this point, right? So you can imagine his response 
And they're like, sir, can you please help us understand why your wife is on strike? And so his only response, he just kind of shrugs and he's just like, yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, me and the kids were doing extra work here. I've got them doing the chores. This kid's sweeping. That kid's cleaning the toilet. You know, I've talked to him about their sarcasm. We're just doing whatever we can so that we can help her make her come back down. And you can probably identify. And there's times, maybe on both sides of the fence, where one parent has, wa- has wanted to just go on strike. But you know what? This idea, it's a funny story, but I think that there's an assumption that lies underneath this reality that is very dangerous for us spiritually. And it's the assumptions that our words and actions can atone for our wrongs. Because deep down, I think many of us are still dealing with this reality that when things go wrong, when I mess up, when I am not doing what I'm supposed to, that I am going to have to earn back whatever ground I've lost. And so by my words and my actions, I can atone for the things that I've done wrong. You know, we approach God in the same way, attempting to compensate for the things that we do wrong by acting out in some way goodness. We search the scriptures and we're looking for an act or a vow or some kind of sacrifice or some kind of promise, a verse we can memorize, something that we can do so that God will refrain from going on strike in our lives. But how can we even make him come down when his standards are so incredibly high? You see, the truth is that God's standards aren't just high. They're literally impossible for us. I want to give you a deeper picture of what this looks like. In John 17, G, or excuse me, Luke 17, Jesus was talking to his disciples. And in Luke 17, he actually gave them a couple of things to look at. If you want to be free from sin, if you want to, like, if you want to be completely free of wrongdoing in your life, there are a couple things you need to do. And it's more than just, like, don't sin. That's number one. He didn't even mention that one. That's just assumed. But he says there's three other things. Number one, you must not cause anyone else to do wrong. So not only can you not sin or do wrong yourself, you can't cause anyone else to sin. Number two, you must confront others when they are doing wrong, which means that any time you see someone not doing the things that God wants, we're supposed to confront them. We're supposed to challenge them according to God's word and his truth. And then thirdly, we must be willing to forgive any wrong or sin directed towards us. And you probably remember what Jesus said about this, not seven times, but 70 times seven. So a lot of times, any time, every time someone sins against us, we're supposed to forgive them. And so now we see that the standard isn't just hard. It's not just difficult. It's literally impossible for us to keep. We need grace. And that's what we've been talking about over the past few weeks. We need to come to a real reality that says, there's no way I can do this life apart from God's grace. And so we've discussed things like the fact that grace gives us a new identity in Christ. Grace justifies every single wrong that we will ever commit because we get Christ's righteousness applied to us. 
It's no longer our standard of good. It's now Christ's standard of good that's applied to our lives, which is a wonderful thing. Also, we talked about how grace doesn't grade us based on our performance, but by our position in Christ. And so because Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid for every single one of our sins and declares us righteous. But see, now we see here in Titus, there's actually, there's actually a deeper understanding of the work of grace in our lives. What does it teach us to do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace is a teacher also. Not only does it declare us righteous, it teaches us. And what does grace teach us? Grace teaches us to live godly lives in this present age. That's a beautiful thought. Godly lives. Lives that look like Jesus. And this is hard because how in the world can it be true that we're declared righteous, made holy, and yet God still expects us to live godly lives? How is this true? What's the secret? Because I haven't figured it out fully, and I'm a pastor. What is going on? How can we actually expect to do what Titus is telling us here in this book, what Paul is teaching us through Titus? Well, he actually shows us a little bit here in the passage. You know, here's something important for us to know, okay? Why do we say no? It says that grace teaches us to say no. And it's important for us to, us to understand this foundation. Because the big question is, what motivates us to say no? You remember that ad campaign by Nancy Reagan? She was that chairwoman who basically came up with that drugs, the anti-drug proposal. She said, what? Just say no, right? We all remember that. If you grew up in the 80s, 90s, you remember that. Maybe if you're a little older, you don't know about it. Because guess what? The experiment failed, right? Because nobody just says no. It's always no because... It's always no, and then there's a reason. There's a motivator. There's something that leads us to say no. Paul is saying here in this passage to Titus, he's saying, look, yeah, good, be good, sure. Look at the list. Be good, be honest, be upstanding, be pure, be godly. But why are you doing these things? Why do we say no? You see, there is a way to tell yourself no that actually doesn't get us any closer to the heart of God. There's a way to say no to yourself that actually gets us farther from the reality of the life of God. You see, if you say no to yourself simply so that you can become a good person, then you're missing the right, the right drive of why we should tell ourselves no. You see, many of us, I think, would probably rather have respect than true holiness. We would like to be well thought of by our community rather than look like the person of Jesus Christ and love him and, and emulate him with our life. I think that the desire to be a good person has led many of us far afield from the heart of God. 
and it's me too. I've got to be honest. Like when it comes down to, hey, Jake, I want you to be holy. Sometimes I'd rather just look really good and appear to be holy to other people than to actually take on the reality of what it would mean for my heart to be completely transformed to look like Jesus. And that's what we're talking about here. Grace doesn't just justify us. Grace is a teacher that shows us the way it means to live like Jesus. And so what we can do as Christians and as followers of Jesus is we can say no for all the wrong reasons. We can say no to all these worldly desires and passions simply because we want to look good. This is what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing. They were experts in being good people. They had learned every bit of the law. They were masters at it. And they used it to beat up other people and to hold other people to standards that were impossible. They had no love. They had no humility. They had no sacrifice for the sake of Jesus. They were just putting pressures on themselves and their body and the people around them so that they could appear to look good. And so sometimes we do that. We, we good church folk, we come to church and we go every day and we say these things and we do these things because ultimately we're still trying to look good and be good people, to be respected, to be well thought of. Instead of saying, I am going to allow the restoration of God to take place in my life. But then there's other things that we can do, right? There's other reasons why we tell ourselves no. Maybe you're terribly afraid that God is going to bring some calamity upon you if you disobey. Sometimes my wife thinks like this. You know, like one of the kids will have a sniffle and she'll be like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Like I think, I just read somewhere that tuberculosis kills I think we have a child with tuberculosis, right? And we think this way. We think, oh, I, and I remember back, I, I, think, I don't think I went the speed limit or I may have taken the Lord's name in vain or I said a cuss word or I, I thought evil thoughts and now God is gonna smite me. Everything goes around, comes around. Karma, baby, watch out. If I do something wrong, something's gonna come back to bite me. What kind of motivation is that? So I better be good or else I'm going to be in trouble. That's just fear. That's fear motivation. Or maybe, maybe sometimes we get motivated because of what our parents think about us. We've all grew up in the South, or most of us here, but you guys, some of our transfers, I'm sure, but most of us grew up in the South. Or maybe you've understood what experience, what it is to be from a religious family before. And so then that's not, enough, that's not fear motivation. That's not I want to look good motivation. That's blood pressure, right? And that's even worse. Nobody wants high blood pressure. But you, maybe you know what that feels like as well. You want to be good because you want your, the respect and love even of your parents or your parents' parents or the rest of your family. All those motivations actually get us farther away from the heart of God. There's a way to tell yourself no just so you can become a good person. And none of these motivations work. None of them get us there. 
Unless we say only Christ has died for me, he gave himself to purify me and make me his own. I am going to see a future kingdom of God experienced now in my life. The reality of Jesus Christ coming out of heaven onto earth, living his life through me because God so loved me, I want to live and be like him. That's the only motivation that works. That's it. And so as we begin to slice down through all of our individual desires and motivations to be godly, it's very, very important for us to remember that God's grace is the only thing that teaches us to be like Jesus. Do you understand this? Grace is a teacher. There can be no other teacher. There can be no other guide to look like God and to live godly lives than grace. And we have to remember that. And so I want to bring out a couple more ideas that this passage shows us. Because ironically, unless we know that God accepts me no matter how I obey, then you're not really obeying him. What a conundrum. Unless we understand that God accepts me no matter how I obey, we can't really obey him. And yet God desires for us to obey him. So what is a good motivation, Jake? How can I do that? Well, you look back and you look forward. Okay, you look back and you look forward. You look back to what grace has done in your life in the past. And if you're like me, you've got a pretty long list of things that grace has done for you in the past. It's important for us not to forget those things. It's important for us to not think of ourselves too highly, more highly than we ought. We've got to remember that every single day we need God's grace. And so we look back to what he's done, but we also look forward. John Stott put it this way. Grace not only saves us, but undertakes our training. How? Grace bases all her teaching upon the great facts in which her first grand revelation of herself was made and finds all her teaching power in those mighty memories. Jake, I'm trying to forget about my past. No, you don't revel in your past. You don't go back and get beat up about your past. You take joy in the fact that Christ has dealt with all of those things. And there's this glorious revelation that every single sin is paid for by the blood of Jesus. I want you to look at this past, present, future thing, okay? And it's in verses 11 and 13. So let's see if we can look at those real fast. It says in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's past. That's already happened. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin in the past on the cross 2,000 years ago. But then also look at 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's this appearing that happened in the past. And then there's the great hope of an appearing that is going to happen in the future. Grace pulls the reality of both of those into the present. Come on, that's pretty amazing to think about. Grace pulls, from the, pulls the reality and the truth that God has saved us, justified us from the past. 
And he brings the hope that he will one day restore us fully and make us just like Jesus perfectly from the future and places those two realities right now in the present. That is the work of grace in our lives. Pulling the promises from the past and the hope of the future into the present reality of our lives. And so in order to live by grace, not only do you need to remember the past, you also need to look to the hope of the future. Because 1 John chapter 3 tells us that we, when we see Jesus, we will be like him. And it literally says when Jesus appears in that verse, we will be like him because we will see him as he fully is. And there will be a literal appearing of Jesus. And when we see him, it's like everything is going to make sense. All the scales, all the weights that we've been wearing of the world, of our own sorrows, of our own pain, of our own sin, are going to melt away at the appearing of Jesus. And we are going to be transformed because of what we see. That's the hope that we're waiting for. And that is the motivation for us to be able to live godly lives today is that we can have a hope in Christianity that is beyond this world. You see, there's true grace that produces joy in our lives and promotes godliness. Do you remember the Back to the Future movies? Remember those? Marty McFly? I love those movies. They've literally come out with a a hoverboard and the self-tying Nike shoes. You can buy them. Like thousands of dollars, but you can buy them. Go for it. My favorite part of those movies, one of the, the, I always thought they were so intriguing. Like, okay, so he's going back in time and he's changing the present based on the past. That's wild. And then he goes to the future and changes the past according to the future, but it's really the present. It always boggled my mind. And one of the things that I remember is when Marty McFly, in the first one, first Back to the Future movies, he goes back in time and he's there playing at the high school dance. He's playing the guitar, and you remember what happens? Like, the, he, he disrupts the parent, his parents' first meeting, and the whole movie is about him trying to get his parents back together. And so it looks like it's not going to happen at the school dance. That's like his last shot. And so he's playing on stage, and he literally begins to disappear because he can't get his parents back together. He's ch- completely changing his present because of what happens in the past. And then you remember the other movie where he goes to the future and then he comes back to the present and like everything is completely different. And so here's what Paul is saying to us. Not that we get to go to the past or go to the future, but literally God is bringing the future and the past to our present right now. And it changes everything. Our whole world begins to change. I want to I give us a picture of what this future really looks like. We've been talking about how here at Southcrest Church, remember when Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what? On earth as it is in heaven, right? We've been talking about that as a church. What does that mean? What, is, what are we even talking about there? Do you understand that tit- what we see in Titus is that grace makes that possible? Grace brings the future into the present of our lives. And so, how do we find 
this motivation, this joy to live obedient lives. You have to look forward. You have to look backward, but you have to look forward. And so you need to look to the new heaven. What is this new heaven? You know, I once read a story where one of the characters said, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And he lets this question hang out there. Is everything sad going to come untrue? That's the reality of the new heaven that is coming to earth. God wants to bring justice into the world. And when you think about a new heaven, it's one thing to think about it being out here, that literally God's going to wipe every tear. He's going to make every wrong be righted. He's going to make anyone who ever suffered pain be restored. He's going to make those who were taken advantage of and who were put into slavery brought into freedom. God is going to say, anyone who was poor, anyone who was last, anyone who was at the back, you're going to be brought to the front. And the people who are at the front, you're going to the back. Everything is going to be righted. Every wrong that was ever done is going to be made right in Jesus Christ. And that's the heaven that's going to come out here. But do you know that there's also a heaven that God wants to bring in here? It's in our own hearts. What kind of God would he be if he just said, you know what, I'm just declaring you righteous, don't worry about it. But I don't care about what happens inside your heart. I don't care that you actually have the freedom that I want to bring you. That this is just some kind of a band-aid that says, awesome, I'm gonna make it into heaven. Awesome, I get my card stamped. I get my check cashed. And I'm gonna spend eternity one day. But right now, this is awful. What kind of God would he be if he didn't want to actually bring about heaven on earth right now in our lives? And that's the promise, that he hasn't left us alone in our sin. Yes, he's declared us righteous. That's the foundation. We can't get anywhere unless we stand on top of that. But he's also bringing something from the future into the present. Think about it this way. What if you got a million, $10 million? What if I said, you're going to get $10 million? Let's just say you're broke and you're going to get $10 million. All right? There's no way Jake will be able to actually make good on this. Okay? So this is just an illustration. I'm going to give you $10 million. What is the mumble? I'm going to give it to you every, a million dollars every single year. Okay? So what is the part of that good gift that makes the biggest change? in your life. It's the first million, isn't it? Because you go from nothing to being a millionaire in a moment. But that's just a deposit of another one-tenth of what fully is coming to you. And that's what we're talking about, is the more that we grow in our understanding of grace and allow it to teach us we get another million and another million and another million and another million because we, are, we have inherited a deposit of something that is coming from the future. And we have to set our hearts and minds on that day and not be content with the injustice that we see out there and the injustice that we see in here because God has got so much more for each and every one of us. He wants more for us. And I got to say, I still haven't figured this holiness thing out. But man, I want to. 
man, I want to live this justified, redeemed life and not just be declared righteous, but I want to act like it. I want to love my kids every time. I want them to be able to yell and spit at me and me be able to say, bring it on. Is that all you got? I want to be able for the world to reject me and hate me. And in the midst of that, I'm going to say praise and glory to Jesus Christ. I want to be able to, if called upon, to give my life for my faith. That's not possible without grace that teaches me how to live a godly life. And so you've been saying, Jake, awesome. I get it. There's this incredible picture of grace. There's an incredible future coming where everything is going to dance. Everything will sing. Everything will be as it's supposed to be. Every wrong will be righted. What does that mean for me? Well, there's a way to come to God that basically says, hey, you know what? I'm kind of down on my luck. You know, I'm not really able to reach my goals here. I've got some aspirations. I got a list, God. And I've got six done, but I need help with the other four. And so really what I need you to do is I need you to help me meet my goals in life. And so here's what I'd like you to do. I've got, I've got a management system, God. You, I need your power and work and influence in my life in these areas. If you'll just come in and help me with these things, that would be great. And so we can come to Jesus and we can say, yeah, Jesus, I want you. I need you. I love you. But really what we're saying is I'm kind of down on my luck. My life's not going great. I need this enhancement that you can bring to me. But here's the thing that we're missing. When you travel to a new universe, they've just discovered, what, seven new planets that can sustain life? If we were to go to one of those planets, how ludicrous would it be for us to expect it to look like Earth? And that's what happens is when, when, you in, when a new universe takes seat in your heart and life, you don't get to pick the trees. You don't get to pick the rivers. You don't get to say the size of the seas. All we do is allow that universe to come inside of us and rearrange everything about us. That's what it means to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Is when you say, all right, Lord, I'm going to come to you, but you have permission to rearrange everything. What we're talking about is complete and total surrender before God. What's the door that opens? How do we get access to this grace that transforms us now? How do we pull from the future and the past and make God's reality into the present? It's total and complete surrender. And I gotta say, guys, there's quite a few things in my life that I still think, Jake, you've got the read on this. You know what it is to be a good person. You know what it is to live a holy life. Just base all your actions and thoughts and drives and desires on these things that you already know. And as a pastor, a preacher, a professional Christian, I have got to submit every one of those things to Jesus and surrender. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you have made a decision for Christ or have any prayer request, please email us at hello at southcrest.tv. 
If you would like to join us in our Do You See What I See giving campaign, please check out our website at southcrest.church forward slash do you see.